The Gun Dog Notebook Podcast is presented to you by Onyx Hunt, crafted to be the number one digital mapping resource for hunters, anglers, and landowners. Download the Onyx Hunt app from your phone's app store today and use my promo code GDN20 for 20% off your Onyx subscription. I also want to bring to you Yukonuba Sporting Dog, the premium performance 3020 blend. For the last 50 years, Yukonuba has created premium nutrition that unlocks the power and potential within. From the unstoppable performance of the sporting dogs to the life-saving abilities of working dogs to the incredible companionship of service animals and family pets. Check out Yukonuba Sporting Dog today and go pick up a bag of the 3020 premium performance blend and guys last but not least i want to thank my affiliates lion country supply and garmin fish and hunt go check them out today for the spring training season all right guys so it is episode 99 of the gun dog notebook podcast we are creeping up one episode away from 100 um, and to my podcast listeners, I want to thank you all for your support over the last few years of recording. Um, I've gotten a wealth of just really positive feedback. And many of you are, you know, enjoying the episodes past new, the growth, the guests, and of course, the dogs and the development. So because of that, I want to open up the podcast to you all now. Um, I want to include your voices into the episodes in a new listener mail segment. Um, and what I mean by that, guys, is just, you know, uh, record maybe a 30 second to, to one minute long clip of, of anything that, you know, is podcast related, constructive and, and you know, something that might definitely help folks or, or just honestly, if you just want to shout out or, you know, whatever the case, I don't, you know, I don't care. Just keep it positive, man. Um, but, you know, I, I want to give you guys just some some, I guess, more engagement, you know, and, and make sure that you guys feel just as much a part of the podcast as, as I am. I know a lot of the times, you know, I'll get to talking and things like that, but, you know, it's really to help everybody. And I want to share that experience and, and share you guys' thoughts. So all that being said, you know, just what you got to do, just record a 30 second to one minute um, voice memo on your phone's recording app. Um, you can email that voice memo to the gundog notebook at gmail.com. And, you know, in the subject title line, you can put your first name, last name, and, you know, put listener mail next to it. So I know that, you know, where it's coming from. And even if you want to leave a little type message in there as well, just a little short something, I, you know, however you want to do it, man. But um, every so often, I want to kind of add some, some engaging questions and thoughts and things like that that you all may be interested in responding to um but you know i'm gonna I'm kind of go off of you guys's you know playbook and and we see what we got um next order of business you know it is the training season and it, you know with that last episode i wanted to stress the importance of, of utilizing the time that we have during this whole virus and all of that stuff um, guys, please be safe. I, I feel like I just want to say this, but be safe, man. Like, I know everybody wants to get out and things like that. And, and you have you guys have your own beliefs about that stuff. But man, like this whole virus thing, like 
it's not anything to joke about. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not really into getting into politics and things like that, but just for, for everybody's personal welfare and safety, guys, like do the right thing. You know, if folks stay, say stay at home, you know, stay at home, get yard work in, man. Um, you know, if you like me, I done ran the same backyard training trail for God knows how many times. And, you know, it is what it is. And it's going to get a little bit slower because, you know, summer training can only really last so long before you start doing the same thing. And, and, and bird dogs either get tired or start predicting or whatever the case may be. But just, clean, you know, use the time to clean up the fundamentals. Um you know, and, and catch up on reading. You know, I've been doing a lot of reading. Um, I've gotten so many really good books um, on field trial history. That's kind of where I'm at now. And once I finish, um, I just finished the Jack Harper book and the uh, I'm coming up on the the tail end, the, the, the last third of the Ed McFerrier book. Um, I'm going to give myself a little bit of a historical break <laughs> and actually take a stab at... Um, you know, Craig Koshik's book that he sent me, um, his, his book blessed. And it, it's a little bit more about his family history and lineage, you know, them coming over from Europe and things like that. But I, I will, uh, definitely be catching up on a lot of that stuff. I got a lot of films and things that I kind of wanted to, um, you know, watch as well. But anywho, um, I say all that to say, guys, I hope you all are safe. Um, I hope you guys are healthy. And, and I and I hope to give you guys something, you know, in depth that you guys can can kind of hang on to while we got the extra time. And, you know, just just learn a little bit more. Maybe it's something you knew. Maybe maybe it's something that you didn't. But regardless, guys, I I'm really going head over heels for this whole bird dog history thing and field trial history. Um, I've got a lot coming up. Um, you know, the dogs are doing well and, and, and it's just that time. So use it constructively guys. And, and, you know, let's, let's, let's get to the business, man. This is the gun dog notebook podcast. Who we have today is my buddy steeple bell, who has done a tremendous amount of writing and research, everything from American field. Um, you know, he's got past, you know, issues and things like that of American field that go way, way, way back to a hundred years ago. You know, he's, he's been collecting. Whew, I, I've seen a picture of his collection. It's pretty impressive. Um, and Steeple and I have talked for, hours on end and and i've just been kind of soaking it up so initially we uh were going to do just an episode with he and i and that's still coming in the books too we got about three hours recorded <laughs> of me and steeple but um and that's just a, a, a you know a learning opportunity for me but um also what happened was steeple and craig koshik are you know good you know they're they're good friends with each other and they had gotten to talking uh kind of in the middle of the process of recording with steeple and was like yo like let's let's just continue this conversation with what we were doing on the rose podcast so they gave me a call and, and we all kind of sat down and of course you know i had to say yes so now we got craig kasha going um and craig is a good friend that i've been talking to him for you know a good little minute now and he's given so much information just 
so much information about just bird dog history. Um, he sent me his book, um, Pointing Dogs, um, Volume One. That, you know, talking about the Continentals, and ever since then, it was just you know conversation after conversation, laughs, and all kinds of history. Um, so, anywho, all of that being said, these two gentlemen have done so much for the bird dog world and bird dog history. They are. You know, the, the Jedi Knights, as I like to say. I'm just a little young Padawan. But anywho, guys, I hope you guys enjoy it. We got Sepal Bell and Craig Koshik on the line coming up. This is episode 99 of the Gundog Notebook podcast. Stay tuned. All right. Back to the Gundog Notebook podcast. Um, we had quite a bit of a a game changer right now so i'm on the phone with steeple bell and craig koshik two gentlemen that have filled me in uh lord i don't know how much y'all have told me a lot i mean craig we speak you know through facebook and you send me you know all kinds of information um you know i got your 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 book on you know on your family lineage and and steeple you know we've spent for many 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 hours and we got a podcast kind of building on itself anyway so anyway gentlemen um you know how are you guys let's start there i'm fine we're finally seeing some warmer weather and the sunshine up here in canada okay 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 uh and it's and it's a balmy 90 degrees here in texas So you you just a little bit hotter than it is here in Georgia. So we got this. Uh, actually, our locations, if you think about it, Craig, you're directly north of Steeple, and I am uh, east of you guys. It's kind of a triangle. It's kind of like a. It is a triangle, and actually, we're covering. You know, when we're talking, you know, pointer and setter history and bird dog history, you know, we're in three sort of strategic ground zeros for a lot of that history. Oh, all right. So that's that's a good starting point. So, what what how how does that make it ground zero for us? Like, explain what you mean by that. I think that's a hell of a starting point. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, when you look back, actually, for me, it was quite a revelation. I've lived in Manitoba, which is. I always tell Americans, if they know where North Dakota is, there's actually something north of North Dakota, and it's called Manitoba. <laughs> and, that's, and that's where I live. And um, during my research into bird dogs, I was actually quite surprised. Uh, and ma- most Manitobans don't know this, but Manitoba played a pivotal role in the, in the development of uh, field trials mm-hmm. and bird dogs. Some of, the, some of the, the most well-known dogs and breeders and trainers uh, came to Manitoba, or some of you that lived here in Manitoba, uh, to train their dogs. There's very few of them left nowadays. They've all moved on to Saskatchewan or they stay in the U.S. But Manitoba had uh, the Manitoba Chicken Championship still happens every year. It had one of the earliest field trials and one of the one of the biggest names in the early, early days. We're talking the 1880s mm-hmm. of uh, Pointer and Setters uh, was a guy named Thomas Johnson right from here in Winnipeg. Um, you know, and then you, where you're at in Atlanta, of course, you're you're, you're in, in quail country and mm-hmm. plantation country, and and you know the first field trial was run out of Memphis, and where yep. Steeple is done in Texas, that's got a long history of some famous famous dogs and uh, and famous trials as well. Yep, 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 yep. Steeple, what what say you, sir? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't count out the Midwest. The uh, Dayton, Ohio, and St. Louis Kennel Clubs 
mm-hmm. were real important in that in those early years too. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, Thomas Johnson, the fellow from Manitoba, was one of the heavy competitors each year at the Dayton, Ohio shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would travel with his dogs a good distance. Yeah, he was um, a traveling salesman. He was a wealthy man. He worked for an even wealthier guy named Galt, who also did uh, a bunch of trials. And Galt was uh, – it, it's strange. You know, Winnipeg in 1900 or the late 1800s was called the Chicago of the North. Uh, Winnipeg was the fastest-growing city in, in this part of North America at that time, and we had more millionaires per capita um, than anywhere else. Really? Um, they were called – yeah, they were called the Wheat Barons. It was – and some of those families still to this day exist um, and own half of the town. I mean – they were just like you have oil barons, I suppose, in mm-hmm. Texas, where families made their fortune through oil and things like that. And in, in Georgia with the cotton and that in Manitoba, it was, you know, limitless wheat fields and, and cheap labor from immigrants. And so there were a lot of people who made a lot of money for a certain period of time. Of course, it's no longer the case. But but at that time, Winnipeg happened to have a lot of really rich guys. And some of those guys were into bird dogs. And so so Thomas Johnson was a traveling salesman. Yeah, and he would go all over the states and he participated in a lot and steeple i'm glad you mentioned the midwest because i just i was writing the other day about a field trial in 1878 just you know four years after the first one in memphis and this one was from uh uh in a place called sock center minnesota and it was the minnesota kennel club that ran it in september and there's a really fascinating blow-by-blow sort of play-by-play uh article that appeared in harper's weekly and it's even got color illustrations of the field trial and it's just absolutely fascinating to to see um, their illustrations and to read the actual play-by-play account from those days. Uh, yeah, that was actually the the third location for a field trial. The, of course, the Memphis gets the credit for being the first, and then Iowa, Hampton, Iowa was was second, and then Minnesota comes third. Um, and then after that, you started the different, uh, a whole bunch of different kennel clubs, the National American and the Eastern Field Trial and the Pennsylvania, and, uh, California, uh, Gilroy Gun Club, um, Nebraska. It, it really blew up after that. Uh, but uh, Tennessee, Iowa, Minnesota were the first three. <laughs> You know, and you got to think about it. Here we are. I'm up in Canada. You're out in Texas, people. And, and really, you're out in Atlanta, Georgia. And we're talking on the telephone. We're recording it. People are going to listen to it by a podcast. And we're talking about a trial that happened in 1878. Mm-hmm. And you got to figure in Minnesota. And, and as you mentioned, people, you know, another one happened in Memphis. So we're talking Memphis and Minnesota and other places, St. Louis and all across that part. And then imagine... How did those guys get there? (laughs) There were no cars. There were no highways. There were no telephones. The telegraph Mm -hmm. was around and trains were just starting to go to most of the major cities at that time. But could you imagine the journeys that these fellows used to have to make? You know, Um, the Manitoba trial started in like 1903, I think, one of the first ones, um, uh, the Manitoba one. But there were some even before then, just south of Winnipeg. And those guys came from the States on trains. One of the stories about that kind of travel and stuff was uh, national champion John Proctor mm. uh, arrived on the trains at Grand Junction, and they had him trot b- beside the horse and buggy 
out to the Ames plantation to make his run that day. Right. And then when it was over, he trotted back to the train station, got on a train and went to the next trial. <laughs> uh, you know, they, 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 you know, he didn't even get in the buggy. Uh, right. So that, that kind of brings up another thing. All right. So, uh, Craig, I'm not sure if I told you this, but um, I know Steve Bob talked about it um, a number of times. I've mentioned it. So I'm reading the um, Reflections book by Ed McFarrier, right? And early in that book, and then I just finished Jack Harper's stuff. So early in that book, um, in the Reflections book, um, Ed Mac talks about how um, they would travel from, you know, Alabama all the way up and it was through a Ford Model T, you know, and mm. like let, I kind of want to talk about the the I guess the the evolution of travel, you know, because there was a lot that changed and a lot of dogs, unfortunately, passed away in transit. You know, there was a lot of pneumonia. There was a lot of distemper. There was a lot of things that were going on in transit. Um, you know, what do you guys think about the I guess the matriculation of, of, of travel and the ways in which they were getting these dogs up there? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, one of the fascinating things I saw on eBay, this was a while ago, and it was way too much money for me, but it would have been a really cool thing. There was actually a dog crate from that era. Mm. It was a it was a wooden dog crate. I'm sure the Bird Dog Museum must have one, yep. or you know, some of the old hey, things. The Bird Dog Museum has two of You said that yeah, so they've got two. Old, so it was like a wooden dog crate, you know, handmade with some bars on it. And there was a, a plaque with the dog's name or a place or thing. Anyway, it was this old beat up thing. And, and then you realize that, you know, some guy down in Memphis put their dog on a train two weeks later and ended up in you know Canada somewhere. And that's where that dog lived. And it was just this fascinating. I mean, there must have been thousands of those crates around and there's probably half a dozen left in the world. And I just thought that's such a cool era and, and what they had to do to get them up here. Right. And then, of course, once the cars, you know, uh, automobiles started. Uh, but, I mean, it was always a really arduous journey. To this day, Colvin Davison and Maisie, they drive from Alabama all the way to North uh, to, to Manitoba every year. Um, and they're, they got a big-ass truck and, a, and pulling a big-ass trailer with horses and dogs. And even now, that's quite a voyage. I don't know if it takes them three, four days or something just to get, you know, across there. But it's still a long way. And you're right. You know, caring for that many dogs for that long of a distance was, was quite a thing. Yep. Uh, another story you often hear is the handlers commenting about the quality of the Canadian horses. Um, most of the horses available to them back then were draft horses, uh, not saddle bred, you know, walking horses or anything like that. And uh, I, there's several different stories about who introduced Tennessee walking horses to Canada uh, and such, but um, yeah, Jack Harper claims yeah, quite, it was him, quite, often, quite often. When <laughs> he the, did claim when it was him. Yeah. First, when the handler first arrived in Canada, he had to take a plow horse and break it to be a saddle horse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, actually, I'm writing a portion in my um, in my next book about it's called the canine equine uh, comedy. I don't think it'll make to the book because it's just so long, and I'll probably do it as an article. But just looking at the at the at the connection between horses and and bird dogs, and so you know, throughout my travels across Europe and and everywhere, everybody associates that with American field trials, and of course it is. I mean, 
the iconic picture, even the old paintings of Tracy and, and even, you know, to this day, you just, you know, do a Google image search for pointer setter field trial USA, and you're going to see horses. You're going to see right. you know, handlers and judges and everybody on horseback. That's the iconic image of it. But what I realized in my research is that um, horses were sometimes used in the early field trials in England as well. Um, mm-hmm. Ponies were available to rent. They were usually ponies. Ponies were always used also to bring these baskets full of food out to the field as well, even during shoots. Judges were oftentimes on horseback, and I also found out that they even hunted grouse off of horseback on the on the moors. And I've got several, you know, accounts from from the old British newspapers about guys doing that sort of a thing. But my question to Steeple then is: in the earliest days of American field trials, only horses, only judges were on horseback. Handlers were actually on foot, and handlers, it seems, actually shot game for their dogs, or there was an assigned gunner. Game was actually shot. Birds were shot in those early field trials, and setters, in a lot of them, were expected to retrieve, although pointers weren't. Um, so, Steepa, when did it occur that handlers started also to go on horseback? I'm not sure I could put my finger on one particular field trial. Um, some of the earliest... Uh, Like, for example, the famous uh, match races between, like, Grouse, Dale, and Litt. Um, uh, those were cross-country horseback events. Um, so the idea of hunting these dogs horseback goes back to the earliest field trials or even before uh, the field trials when uh, that congealed as a, a part of of a, a you know a requirement of of the field trial, um, I, I'm not sure I could put my finger on on any particular uh, place or time. Yeah, I know what happened later. Like in in a lot of the ads, would, or a lot of the in a lot of the articles, it says that horses will be available for the gallery. In fact, I've got one here a report uh, from a local trial in Manitoba when it said the the gallery was very you know there was a lot of people in the gallery and there were even two women on bicycles. Really? Bicycle, yeah, well, because bicycles were new at that time. Bicycles were a cool sort of a new invention. Yeah. In fact, in a lot of in but, a lot of the old sporting uh, literature, what's really cool is you have these old magazines, you know, like Forest and Stream. And these other sporting magazines, they would talk about, you know, bird shooting. They would talk about raising chickens and also bicycling. It was a huh. new thing. And now the biggest, one of the biggest manufacturers of guns in France, called Manu France, they specialized in two things, guns and bicycles. That's all they made. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so, yeah, it, it, it's funny to see how these little modes of transport, and I think people... To answer my own question, I think that you're right. I mean, in the early days, the horses that were available were made available to the judges because they had to be there the entire time, and the handlers only had to handle their dog for their for their stake. And um, the other horses available, especially on the Canadian prairies, were basically plow horses that they would rent or borrow off of the local farmers. So they probably weren't particularly comfortable. And I think it's Jack Harper in his book. I think he claims to have had the first um, uh, Tennessee walking horse. He uh, did. I think, and I, and I, I what, think there's several people that have made that claim. Probably, yeah. Now, uh, uh, but against that claim, though, I was it was it Clyde Morton? One of them didn't like Tennessee walking horses in the trials. Mm. It was one I, I 
I want it like Clyde Morton. That was the thing about they were moving too fast. Yep, it, they were moving too yeah, fast. I think that was a Jack Harper thing, wasn't it? At one point, no, Jack he, Harper he, was he, cool with it. He actually had, um, it was a horse that wasn't a Tennessee Walker, but he, it was it was a some kind of a it like a re, it was a retired horse. And it was really 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 fast. Um, and I I want to say it was Clyde Morton. I, and I'm going to go back and look that up and I'll, and I'll shoot it to you. But yeah, he said that he just, they were moving too fast and they were crowding the judges, you know, and they were forcing the dogs. Um, they were for, like basically forcing the dogs ahead. Like they were kind of crowding. Um, and Jack Harper says that he had gotten a Tennessee walking horse from somebody out that way. And it actually worked out. He, he liked the way it rode. Well, it must have been a nice break from having to go on some old plow horse or something. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, and the early ones you see, even in the paintings and stuff like that, you'll see like in Tracy's paintings, you know, there, there's judges in a gallery on horseback, but the handlers themselves are on foot and they're armed. You know, I mean, the, you mm-hmm. know, there's, there's, there's paintings of, the, of one of the handlers, you know, shooting a bird for his, his dog. Um, and they were, they were on some trials, they were actually, you know, the, the, the scale of points gave them a certain number it, of points for retrieving. It, in a lot of the earliest photographs, you'll see horse and buggies as often as you'll see individuals on a, on a horse. Yeah. Um, and, uh, a lot of the prairie condition trials like Manitoba or Kansas and, and St. Louis area and such that they would hunt from horse and buggy, um, as often as they would be individuals on horseback. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there's that grand tradition in the south of, of the southern plantations having their dog wagons and right and mule teams. Right now, that and and, and I think that. Uh, so down here in a, in in with with, with I'll, I'll add that when they were on horse and buggy, they had a team of helpers. Mm-hmm. You know they uh, they would have a driver. And then they would have a hand, a person that would handle the dogs, right. and all they had to do was ride along and shoot. Right. Um, and see, that's and how I, it is down here I, now. You know, and and I think that kind of led to the ideas of professional handlers in the dog trials, uh, rather than the owner of the dog handling himself. Right. Uh, so yeah, it was, um, it's interesting actually, you know, your, your mention of the handlers and stuff, I've got some old accounts and of handlers and, and, and how they started to, to rise in prominence and, and get more and more common and their reputation went up. What I'm finding, there's a couple of fascinating books. I've been reading a lot about the history of hunting and, and upland hunting in, in North America. And what's really interesting is how attitudes changed towards, um, hunting and, and hunting for sport, uh, over, over the, over the years. We always sort of look back in the old days and think that, you know, hunting was always this revered sort of activity mm-hmm. that everybody did and everybody, you know, enjoyed or everybody respected. But in fact, 
there were periods of American history and Canadian history too when hunters and sports hunting for sport was was not seen as something good. It was seen right. as something um, um, it wasn't as pure or puritan as it should be. It was too much. There was too much pleasure in it. You should be working the farm. You should be out there having a good time with your with your dogs and 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 guns and shooting birds. And then same thing with dog breeders. Dog breeders and handlers and breakers they called them or trainers. They had a they had a poor reputation for a long time, and it took a while um, for them to shed that reputation because they were associated with things like saloons and gambling mm-hmm. and horse racing and horses. And, and that whole thing didn't have, it, it, it was sort of an outlaw kind of a thing to be, um, you know, and so they were a little rough, rough around the edges at the beginning, but then slowly, you know, they sort of regained a better sort of, uh, you know, reputation among the public. Well, that was always one of the, uh, smears on on the earliest of the field trials was that it was such a form of gambling mm-hmm. um you know it, it's anti up that you're making a bet you got the best dog and anti up that entry fee you know and the the idea of field trials grew out of these different match races where you know two guys would bet on each bet each other who had the best dog and pick somebody to be the judge um you know so the the whole concept of field trials is based on on a form of gambling right yeah and it was done by men who who had an interest in in hunting and i some of the quotes i i read it's just great you know like the like they thought like back in the day um when you ate domestically raised beef and and cattle and and pork and stuff that was a a civilized type of food that 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 led to a civilized personality and a civilized manners whereas whereas eating wild food and wild game could lead a man to lust and it could lead a man you know to make him wild really Um, you know yeah, yeah, that's what, that was the big theory, you know, was that that it's just that, that's what savages do. That's what those Indians do. They eat the wild meat, and if a man goes out and has wild meat, he's not going to, you know, perform his job well, and he's going to run around and chase women and gamble and drink. <laughs> so, wow. And then, yeah, and then you, then, then you add competitions between dogs in it. And yeah, for sure, they had a while to go. They had a they had a bit to do to to get over that sort of evil reputation from right at the beginning. There's also the sort of a, an elitist difference in um, old world hunting, particularly, you know, coursing game with hounds mm-hmm. um, and such was very much a aspect of the nobility. Um, for quite some time in England, a, a commoner could not own a setter. If, if a commoner was caught in the possession of a setter, then it was deemed that he must be a poacher and therefore, yeah. you know, to be punished. Yeah. Um, that, that, you know, that the quality of dog, uh, you know, was reserved for that noble class of people. Um, and there's, you know, so there's some elitist uh, attitudes you know, carrying over there. Um, well, yeah, for sure. And the other, and, and then of course you take the, uh, you take the American, uh, attitude to reject any of that, uh, type of, you know, nobility, uh, as such as, you know, a trait of Americanism and, you know, you get, uh, up the boy and his dog kind of story that you just don't hear very much of in, 
in England. Let me let me let me spin off of that real quick, and I, I don't want to get too far off of the pointer setter history thing because we're we're on a he- a heck of a track, but. All right. So we're talking about elitism and I've always heard the term, um, Craig, you you may have heard this. I, I feel like it's something that kind of gets said. But dogs like um, like Britney's and, and some of these Griffons and th- stuff like that. Have you ever heard the term po- poacher's dog? Yeah. Is that where that's coming from? Okay, a couple of things. Whenever you read, you really have to keep in mind that any breed um, is basically, it is an idea made manifest. It's basically a shared idea with four legs and a nose. And so a group of people get together and agree on the name of this this breed. And they, they name it that and it becomes that breed because of various things. It's It was bred or developed in one area or by one person or whatever. But a breed becomes a breed and no breed is older than about 200 years because the entire concept of breed is a, is a relative new one. So with a breed, you need a name, you need a standard that says, well, it looks like this, it stands this tall, it does this, it does that, blah, blah, blah. And you need a backstory. You especially need a backstory that has a little bit of charm and a little bit of intrigue to it. And because okay. that just sort of, that just sort of dresses up your, it, it's basically like putting a new product on the market. You know, you, you, you put a little flair on it and you say it was invented by some mysterious guy in some cave with special ingredients and the Colonel's secret recipe will never be revealed. So yeah, I mean, there are certain breeds that are always associated with a nobleman. Well, it's said that Count so-and-so developed this with his baron friend over here. So that's great. You want to have a baron or a nobleman or some king associated with your dog. Or you want your dog breed to be super old. <laughs> Got cave paintings that show this dog doing this. You know? right. Or you, you want want your dog to be the opposite of the nobleman's dog. He's a poacher's dog and only the secret handshake guys in the little cottage down by the lake that used to go and steal sheep would have them. Now, is it true? Yeah, probably not. You know, it, it, it's, you know, sure. I mean, what is a poacher? Who was poaching? Did they have dogs? Did they breed them purely? It, it, it's just part of the marketing spin in a lot of ways. So whenever you read some of these histories, you really have to understand that, that it's, it's a lot of salesmanship involved in it too. Okay. Okay. I, I, as soon, Steeple, as soon as you said that, I, it, 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 you know, I, uh, it just made me think about that. And, you know, the but, whole. You know, but there is, but there is an interesting connection. And I think Steeple touched on it as well. In Britain, uh, throughout, throughout, even in continental Europe, but in Britain, they didn't have a revolution. So they never, I mean, they still to this day have a queen, right? right? They still have royalty. Whereas most of Europe and most of the European countries threw that off in the 1700s or as late as the mid 1800s. They just, they, they went into sort of republics and, and various sorts of other forms of democracy, non-monarchies. Whereas in England, they kept that. The other fact is that Dogs are expensive, especially back in the day. Um, today, we get a puppy, we expect it to live 12, 14 years. You had a puppy back then, you hoped it lived its first year, and if it did, you were good to go. But half of the kennels and half the stock in every kennel was wiped out every year just to, with distemper and other diseases. So dogs were expensive. And in fact, in England, Derry argue in his book, Pointers and Setters, has a great explanation as to why pointers and setters didn't retrieve. Because mainly they were owned by really rich guys who could afford them, 
Uh, they were expensive dogs, and you needed a lot of them because you didn't hunt with just one. You hunted with, you know, four or five, two at a time, and you hunted all day with your really rich friends. And he said that the reason they didn't retrieve, he says, because at that time, men were cheaper than dogs. It was cheaper to employ a guy. It was You had servants. Yeah. But those dogs, they were expensive, man. You had to spend a lot of money getting them and breeding them and keeping them alive and training them. So, you know, your dogs were out there to find point game. You shot it, and then, you know... Jeeves out in the back there, he comes up and gathers up the slain uh, uh, birds, sometimes with his own dog, which looked like a Springer or a Lab or something. But yeah, it was a very interesting quote. He said, back in the day, dogs cost more than men. Um, and so you're right. And you, you still see some of that mentality today in the driven shoots mm-hmm. in England, oh, yeah. where they have a special class, class of people to follow up as pickers up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Beaters and pickers up. Yeah. And they they feed them lunch. <laughs> That's all they do. They don't even pay them. They just give them lunch. <laughs> Meanwhile, these guys on the pegs that are shooting the birds are paying $10,000 a day. Wow. Yep. 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 And it's, it's still very, I mean, it's just, it's broken up into class. I mean, out there, um, <laughs> And actually, sorry to interrupt, that's the point I was trying to make. So in England, it was expensive, and, and, and the elite had them and still to this day do. They had revolutions. And after the revolution, a lot of those expensive dogs owned by rich royal people, well, those royal people had no head anymore, uh, and their dogs were just sort of scattered to the winds. And those dogs then fell into the hands of the local commoners, the local people, and they bred their own dogs and they bred their own breeds. And yeah, are they called poachers dogs? Well, I would just call them poor people dogs or dogs, <laughs> uh, dogs that were in the hands of just regular everyday people living in a village. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's that is the sort of divide. It's the rich and poor divide. You're right. And yeah. let's not limit that just to geography there there are some continental breeds that carried that nobility status um uh trying to think of like vizelas and weimaraners for mm-hmm. example well uh, they, yeah they have the status i mean the weimaraner the, the weimaraner's link to the old uh, archduke um carl august is is tenuous at best and i've busted that myth a couple of times on my blog but there is a strong connection and it's a validated connection there's a ton of evidence for um for the german short hair pointer was developed and same thing with the poodle pointer poodle pointer was inspired by a baron the german short hair pointer and the entire german testing system was was designed and, and aided by a prince uh, prince albert of uh, solms braunfels and that prince just happened to also have the biggest pointer and setter kennel in all of Europe. He had hundreds <laughs> yeah. and hundreds of dogs. He's yeah, going, going a little deeper on him because he's a really interesting guy. Okay. He is. Yeah. In, in fact, on all of the people that I've, I'm doing some profiles in my next book about all the various oops, sorry about, that, about all the various breeders and famous people who have left their mark on bird dogs. He's kind of a he's kind of a sleeper. Um, some people know his name because of the GSP, because of the German testing system. Some people know his name because he was, you know, sort of into pointers and setters, but nobody, nobody seems to realize just how big of an impact this guy had. So let me start on the English side. He was an Anglophile German prince related to the, the Queen of England. He, um, had, he went to England, studied their kennels, looked at their dogs, and then bought the best dogs he could and established the most modern kennel in Europe at that time. It was huge. He had six, 700 dogs. Wow. He, also bred things, he also bred things like St. Bernard's and Dachshunds and, and Great Danes, but his real love was pointers and setters, and he had really good ones, and he would compete with them in Germany, where they were running field trials, Germany and France and Belgium, 
and he went to England, uh, and he won. He, he won a lot in England. He was very well respected. And, um, but on the other hand, he was also working with the German shorthair pointer. He was working with the German nationalists who wanted to create their own breeds of pointing dogs. And he actually helped create the system that they have now in Germany, all those testing systems, which is the inspiration of NAVDA. So here's this one guy, this German prince, who had a huge sort of influence on the English portion of the, the British breed the pointers and setters, and also on the versatile continental breeds. And yet he's kind of unknown. And then the last one, the, other, the third sort of thing that he did, he had another kennel. He had two, one in the north and one in the south. The southern kennel, he employed a guy named Edward Cortals, the inventor, the creator of the Cortals Griffin. So one dude, his, his fingerprints are sort of across the whole gundog world, and he's kind of a footnote in most books. He's kind of barely mentioned in a lot of books. Hmm. And Stipo, we talked about this the other day, and you were saying that some of his dogs made their way to America. Yeah. Uh, um, descendants of uh, a dog he had named Naso, N-A-S-O, um, were imported very early on, and Prior to us having the dates of us having any reliable pedigrees, uh, some of his dogs, you know, were here. Um, now, now Nasso, what, Nasso was what breed? Of, uh, his name is Nasso of Brownfells. Okay. Was that a pointer set or short hair? Right. And then there's a Nasso too. And then uh, I can't remember if there's a Nasso three. Uh, but there were there were several generations of, of those dogs imported to the U.S. and um, it, it's you know so far back that it's it's hard to see see them in any any pedigrees. Yeah. Now, what what breed was not so was he was a pointer. That okay, he was a pointer. pointer. Okay, uh, but. Trying to think of the name of the setter. There was a setter dog that that was also attributed to his kennels. And back in the day, he was he was he's sort of been forgotten because back in the day he was a big deal. Two things that stand out to me. One is a painting by George Earl, and it's called The Field Trial. And it's a very famous painting, and it, it features, I don't know, about 60 people in it, a bunch of dogs. And basically, it's not a real painting. In fact, a lot of the people, some of the people in the painting were dead by the time he completed the painting. But basically, he took all of the most famous people in the field trial world at that time, and he painted them in a, in a, in a sort of fictitious scene in the hills of Bala, Wales, with a bunch of dogs around them. Well, in that painting is... Prince Albert of Solms, like he was that important to be included, you know, right next to Labrick and right, you know between Labrick and Llewellyn uh, in that painting. And then the other thing is that when Prince Albert died in 1901, his obituary was in the New York Times um, you know, as a big deal. Like, oh my God, we've lost Prince Albert of Solms, the famous breeder of this and that and dog show guy and field trial guy. And then it just kind of all goes to, <laughs> to nothing. It just kind of disappears. Uh, there's there's some other fairly influential people in that painting that kind of fly under the radar, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the pointer world. Uh, the setter breeders uh, were, you know, particularly Laverick and, and Llewellyn, but the setter breeders were a lot more 
well documented than some of the pointer breeders at the mm-hmm. time and such. Uh, Edge, uh, for right. example, was a pointer breeder, or um, Pilkington. Yep. Uh, was another of the early pointer breeders um, that you know sort of flies under the radar, but you know Pilkington had a had a huge influence. He was a a millionaire. He made window pane glass. Mm. He had a fact factories for making window pane glass and was a millionaire. Um, uh, he he was from like the the businesses were Lancashire, England, but he had a. A hunting lodge called Sandside House mm. in Kittness. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Scotland. It's one of mm-hmm. those Scottish names. Um, but uh, his his early pointers, uh, you know, figure in the backstory of a lot of uh, those. Um, the gunmakers uh, Lang, mm-hmm. uh, Joseph Lang, and his son James. And then the gunmaker William Rochester Tape um, also figured very highly. Um, in fact, some of the oldest dogs you can put your finger on, if you go back in a father-son lineage or you go back in a mother-daughter lineage from dogs that are actually living today, and who is the oldest dog that you can go back to, it's usually Lang Squint. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and you know, and you don't hear a lot of about any of those names, uh, but they're all in that that painting. Um, so, I, I guess a couple of things. Um, number one, I, it's so funny that y'all mentioned that field trial. I just want to take two steps back. Um, if you want to find that that actual photo, it's in um, Robert Whaley's Snakefoot book on page 159. I, I knew I'd seen it just as a reference. But going back to, you know, piggybacking off of what you were saying, Steeple, um, uh, before we get too far into history, let's talk about you guys's process. And 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 all right. So if we're if we're talking about Lang's Flint, where does the research like split for you guys? So. You know, Steeple, we've talked a, a lot about starting at Lang's Flint and, and going further, you know, forward into history. Craig, are you going, are you starting there or are you starting before Flint? Okay, I can answer that in two ways. First of all, I tend to look at the forest and not the trees. So in my books and my articles, I rarely, rarely mention specific dogs. Mm -hmm. I might mention breeders and their lines, um, but I tend to look at it in a more sort of uh, from from a a little bit further point of view from 30,000 feet instead of on the ground. So I would look at... You know, I would look at the situation where a dog like that was was bred and what was preceding him. When, how far back was the foxhound cross to him? Where were the rumors of greyhound crosses come from? Was he part of the the Spanish pointer lineage or more from the French lines that came into England at the same time or around the same time? So, so to answer your question, I, I look before, 
during and after, but not specifically at specific dogs. That's that's people's specialty. Man, that he's got like an encyclopedic knowledge, like a, a photographic memory of individual dogs and their sires and dams and and lines and stuff. And that's who I refer to, um, you know, to to find that information. Uh, I I do more broad strokes uh, than specific dogs. Okay. Okay. And and Steeple, talk about you know kind of your process and and where you're starting from and how you've kind of matriculated. Well, I've always looked at it as uh, a family tree genealogy type project. Um, I started trying to figure out what dogs were living today were descendants of dogs that I remembered from my childhood. Um. And, you know, built on that, uh, you know, going, taking, taking something living and going backwards with it. And, you know, just how far can you go back to where they're all related to each other? Okay. Okay. Um, and, you know, and you get to a point like every living dog today, uh, every living pointer today, for example, is a descendant of riprap. Mm-hmm. Every every living center today is basically a descendant of uh, uh, Barkley Fields Duke, the one of the original Llewellyn dogs. Um, you know, and, uh, and to some extent, you can go back considerably further than Red Rout, uh, up until. Uh, about 1950 or 60 or so, you know, there was always this contest between Riprap and Jingo. And, you know, so you could look at Riprap and Jingo and go back to their having a common ancestor of Price's Bang. And then if you look at Price's Bang's pedigree and go back to the, you know, the first generations, you can go back in Price's Bang's pedigree will lead you to that dog Lang's Flint. Okay. Um, uh, Whichever is the oldest female of the female lines is kind of uncertain. It's most likely uh, the William Rochester Pate dog Nellie. Um, Although there's some other contenders in that mix. Uh, The earliest American dog, uh, Lily, for example, of, of, uh, who was brought into the St. Louis Kennel Club, um, would be another contender for being that old. All right, guys, just to give you all a little bit of a break, um, I just want to give a special shout out, you know, to Onyx Hunt and Yukonuba Sporting Dog. I mean, I think about 99 episodes, man, and, and creeping up on 100 yeah, that's a huge step, man. And and we talking about a step in the right direction. Um, and, and, and in regards to step in the right direction, man, like Onyx Hunt is gonna lead the way, man. You know, would they say know where you stand? Well, you know, we 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 are, I guess, staying in place. But that does not mean that you cannot do your virtual scouting. You know, and 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 you know, scouting from your phone or the desktop, you know, whatever it is, man, you know, just make sure that you're making the most of your time with Onyx Hunt 
um, and, and use the Onyx Hunt app. If you are not a subscriber, go on and use my promo code GDN20. All right. That'll get you 20% off of an Onyx subscription. And also, guys, we're talking about, you know, just major, major, major growth you know, over the, the last 99 episodes, which has been a few years. You know, I'm so excited to, you know, be a part of the Yukonuba Sporting Dog team, you know, and, and right around this time, you know, the first week of May, it had been a year since I've been with, um, you know, Yukonuba Sporting Dog. And it's so interesting that the Kentucky Derby is actually coming around now. Um, and so in light of that particular special moment that I spent with Yukonuba Sporting Dog, you know, if you are interested in the Kentucky Derby, check them out. OK, check them out on NBC Sports May 2nd for a virtual Kentucky Derby at home party featuring Triple Crown Showdown is what they're calling it. 13 Triple Crown winners will race one another in a computer simulation under the historic twin spires of, of Churchill Downs. So anyway, you can find more details about that on KentuckyDerby.com. That was just a little bit of a, a shout out and, and, a, and a special thank you to Yuganuba Sporting Dog for having me on the team and, and, and welcoming me like they have. I mean, the dogs are looking good. They're looking strong and, and they always content. You know, they, they definitely, definitely love the food. So if you are, you know, interested, go to, um, you know, you can do a sporting dog. You can go to Chewy.com and get yourself a bag of the 3020 uh, premium performance uh, formula and, and, you know, join you get fueled up, man. You know, just, 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 you know, get, 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 get in the right, in the right frame of mind. I'm going to put it like that. <laughs> There's a lot of good dog foods out there, but you can do the sporting dog is better. So anyway, with that being said, guys, we're getting back to the episode. Hawkwalk book, uh, Dogs in America, mm -hmm. um, as being like, you know, you can, go backwards and look up, you know, and find the dog in that phone book. Right. Because uh, it's just a, such a comprehensive list of names of, of the dogs of his era and such. Um, and, you know, so the goal of going back to find them there uh, and and such. Uh, um, the earliest references to dogs you know might use the name pointer or setter or such but you have to really question if that's the breed that's recognized by you know the breed standards and you know what Craig was describing as the way that a breed gets developed right uh, and such and so um, some of it I, I look at, uh, as sort of, uh, you know, I, I'm not, let me, let me rephrase that. I'm not terribly concerned with older dogs, older than what I can put a relationship to something living in. Okay. You know, uh and such and you know um when you get to those earliest guys there there's some there's some interesting characters involved um 
So let's 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 dive into that a little bit. Talk talk about about that some. Uh, well, you know, some of the earliest actual pedigree information starts with dogs that you can relate to a particular kennel. Um, uh, in the setters, Hawkball gives a number of different uh, flavors of old-time setters, whether they were the uh, Count of Esque or Castle-esque strain or the Landolo strain or Lavericks or um, that sort of thing. And uh, in Pointers, it's uh, Thomas Wedge, Webb Edge and his kennels um, and such. And um, dog breeders of that era didn't always record individual dogs as being of their strain, they were more bred like a herd. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you know, a lot, a lot of times, every female in the kennel would be a mother, daughter, sister, or aunt of all the other females, um, and they'd bring in different stud dogs for that purpose uh, and such. Um, and so, you know, you would see a certain generation was by this stud dog. But none, no, no dog was named individually. After uh, Edge and um, Laverick and Llewellyn and such, people started individually owning dogs, and that dog's individual pedigree became much more important by name rather than rather than the source of the, the kennel source of the dog, the, the pedigree name source became more important to an individual owner. Uh, and such, so, you know, we know the dogs are related, but you just can't put a father-son chain of lineage back to some of the, those older dogs. Okay. Okay. So, and this is something that I, I also think about, um, between you two, um, and, and, and talking to y'all, it, it makes a lot of sense. You say, Craig, you say you're kind of working with a broad stroke and, and steeple, you're kind of a bit more microscopic about the individual. Yes, I'm, I'm walking through the forest and, and numbering all the trees. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, you, you, yeah, are, you are the leaves on the trees and I'm, <laughs> and I'm way up above looking at where the forest and the river runs through it and how it connects to the desert over there. Right. So this is my thing. And I think it's very interesting when like, all right, give me a, a, a specific scenario when, when Craig would call Steeple or Steeple would call Craig and, and say, hey, look, these are my thoughts. Like, I want to be a fly on the wall for that that conversation. Well, yeah, I mean, for me, if people say to me, you know, I've, I've had this conversation with others. They say, oh, you're, you're a dog expert. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I am not an expert at anything except one thing. I know how to find experts. That, that's all I'm an expert at. I know where to get experts. I know how to consult with experts. So when I did my first book, I wanted to do it on every one of the breeds, the pointing breeds from continental Europe. Well, 
I wanted to meet people who had spent their, I didn't want to talk to a guy who owned one GSP and had a couple of Drathars or something. I wanted to talk to a guy who was reading him for 40 or 50. I want to talk to these people who, who, who live and breathe at this sort of stuff. And so I got really good at, at finding people who walk the walk and talk the talk. And um, so, yeah, I mean, Steeple's expertise would be for me, especially in American pointer lines, trying to figure some of that out, trying to figure out, for example, I would ask him, I'm going to be writing a, okay, here's one thing that, that sort of I need to do, and it's going to, it's driving me a little bit crazy, and it's going to maybe wrinkle some feathers, but um, whenever I go to Europe, I take pictures with me to show people what pointers and setters look like over here. And same thing mm-hmm. when I'm in North America, I have pictures of European bred pointers and setters, and I show them to people. And one of the things that the Europeans always remark on is the high tail of the American pointers and setters on mm-hmm. point, 12 o'clock tail, which we love and we know, and it's, it's part of our normal reality. When I first, I remember the first time I showed um, a field trial judge there, I think in Italy, and he said, Craig, why did you Photoshop the tail to look like that? <laughs> And I said, no, 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 I don't Photoshop the tail. That's how it is. And he looked at it and he goes, really? He goes, wow, I, I, I've never seen that. Why do they do that? And then he turns to his friend and he goes, hey, buddy, come here. Look at this dog. It's got a Viagra tail. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm going to, you know, t- I, so, so high tails and low tails have been around forever. You can find pictures and paintings from way back in the day with dogs with high tails and low tails and all sorts of tails. It was just never a fashionable thing. It just never became a fashionable thing. But okay. slowly but surely, in the American scene, a higher and higher tail became more and more preferable to to the point where today all of our dogs they point with nice big old high lofty tails and lofty heads. So there was a mention in um, Harper's book, and this is something I would ask people. I would say in Harper's book he mentions a dog. Now I'm going to get this wrong. I know I'm going to get it wrong because I don't have my notes in front of me. He mentions a dog that had a really high tail and that produced a lot of offspring, and he figures that. They had always existed before then, but after that dog won a whole lot or won one or two major trials that then – and his offspring all had that tail. That's when it sort of caught on. I'll see if I can find the name of that dog. But does this ring a bell, people? I've, I've got Harper's book in my lap. I'm going to flip the pages while we're talking. Um I'll find it somewhere I, you know, in my the, notes as well. But it's, it's some, a very famous dog. Um, it, it, I'm, I'm wondering if it's not CV Rex. Steeple, you, you, yeah, Steeple, you told me Seaview Rex um, last time we spoke. I think that was the marker for you. That's what she told me. Seaview uh, Rex uh, was one of the earliest dogs that um, got a lot of press coverage about his tail mm-hmm. uh, and such. Um, yeah, because there are certain. I'm not sure that I wouldn't. I'm not sure I would say he was the earliest to have that flagpole tail, but he was one of the earliest that got a lot of discussion about it. Okay, so he was probably uh, we would say maybe the okay the poster I, I child. Think I'm on the right page here. Um. Yeah, I think I. I'm, have just, the, I'm just going to read. I'm just going to read this into the. Sure. This is from Harper's Bird Dogs and Field Trials, mm-hmm. page 60. I asked if the dogs running then were more stylish or had higher tails on point than 20 years before. He said, 
He could tell little difference, although higher tails had become more fashionable and dog owners would always try to get the highest possible point for taking the dog's pictures. Before, level tails were more in fashion, especially at the National when Mr. A- when Mr. Ames presided, and dog handlers would then push their tails, their dog's tail to a lower level or wait until they were tired to make their pictures for publication. No one ever thought to push Cebu Rex's tail down to make a picture. Whether his tail had anything to do with it or not, Rex could never gain any more than a gallery decision at the National, but won many good stakes elsewhere. He probably did more for raising the pointer's tails than any other sire. Okay. I doubt it. Um, and he goes on to say Eugene M. probably did more for raising the setter's tail than any other sire. Uh yeah, I've now, got a picture of Stevie Rex. He's got a beautiful, do, nice, big, tall tail. <laughs> let, let's. Uh, um, I, I would add a footnote that Stevie Rex was named runner-up at the national championship three times uh, back in the days when they named runner-up. So he certainly got the attention. He just never won the stake. Okay. Um, another dog that. Uh, very early on, got a whole lot of press about having a flagpole tail was aerial. Um, I can think of uh, Nash Buckingham reports that say aerial with his happy tail um, and descriptors like that. Um, yeah, it, it, it was. A, and see, these are the things that, that fascinate me the most are these sort of changes in culture and changes in attitudes and, and just how things shift. I mean, we always think that it, it's almost like when we look back in the day, it's almost like we see the same old black and white movie playing over and over. But there's a lot of color and nuance to the reality of, of the day. You know, it, it all seems so old and quaint and it seems that it never changed, but things changed all the time. I'm looking at a picture right now of a dog named Champion Peach Blossom. It's a uh, Count Grad, uh, Gladstone uh, daughter and um, it's, she's a lightweight Llewellyn it's described and she said in the field she is dashing and brilliant now now the picture of her I might say she shows not only a, a 12 o'clock tail what do you call it now when it goes even over the back a sickle tail I believe yeah sickle tail yeah, she's got a big old sickle tail, and it's up, and it says, um, in the field, Peach Blossom is dashing and brilliant. Her peculiar carriage of tail on point is shown in the photograph taken by the author. So, you know, they didn't say ugly, they didn't say nice, or it, 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 but they called it peculiar. It was different for them. And so, you know, again, a lot of people say that, no, it only came in in the 30s with, you know, the CV Rex and other dogs like that. It, this picture's from 1903, and I've got paintings, you know, from the 17 and 1800s that show dogs with, with or, or upright tails. So it's always been in the both of those breeds. It's just that at some point in America, and only in America, did it become something cool. And it's remained that way. It's just that's the only place it kind of caught on. Right. I think there's kind of uh, a read between the lines in that comment about the fact that she was one of the smaller, lighter weight Llewellyns. Mm-hmm. And, and those early Llewellyns were smaller, swifter dogs. And, and the trend for setters since them has, to, has been to grow larger in size. Really? Where the, where the trend 
for pointers back then were some heavyweight dogs. When you look at uh, official Frank being mm-hmm. 75, 80 pounds wow. or something, uh, the trend for making the pointers consistently smaller and faster, um, you know, it, it, they, they've been kind of opposite trends between the breeds. So let, uh, let's, I, I want to piggyback and, into and that And I think too. That's, that's also, you know, shows that how the judges of the field trials have, have favored uh, smaller, swifter dogs in, in how dominant pointers became in the field trial game. Right. Well, and I, I want to piggyback into that. So, Sifa, you and I were talking the other day, and there has been a lot of debate about the quote-unquote decline of the English setter, you know, as far as breeding and stuff like that. So when, like, let's talk about that. Like, I think we 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 mentioned that they've kind of had a funky time with breeding or something like that, and pointers kind of took the reins. Um, I'm not sure I would put a descriptor of, uh, breeding out. It's just that that would be a trend that I had noticed in the differences in sizes as the years have gone by. Um, judging standards through the years have, have changed, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, what was considered an all-age dog in, uh, say, 1910 or something was just merely any dog that wasn't a derby. Um, so it had nothing really, to do with distance. We didn't really start making a distinction between all-age dogs and shooting dogs until the 1950s or the first national open shooting dog championship was 1961 you know so at that point there was there was a clear distinction between all age and shooting dog and and the first uh walking championship trial was in the 80s um you know to where you had that distinction of judging standards and such you know so um it's not just the evolution of dogs that are the driving factor there. There's an evolution of, of the judging standards that are being, they're being put to. Yeah. And I would add one other thing. This is just a curious little footnote that I, that I found. It was quite interesting is that in the early days, um, even before the first field trial was ever run at Memphis, there was a um, Forest and Stream was a very influential magazine at that time. And, and in the pages of Forest and, Tr- and Stream, um, first of all, an invitation or a challenge appeared. And then a debate uh, happened after that. And it was basically um, two English breeders, um, McDonough and Price, I believe, um, challenged Americans to a field trial. The Americans had heard about the field trials running in England. They thought, hey, field trials sound like a cool idea. And the English actually proposed an international field trial whereby Americans would take some of their best native-bred American uh, pointers or setters over to England to compete with them, and then the Americans countered with saying, well, why don't you guys come on over here and and have a trial? And so there was a very spirited um, series of letters published over the weeks in uh, Forest and Stream, and it's a fascinating read, and there was um, 
So there was earnest discussions going on and plans were being made to have an international field trial where the best setters and pointers from England would compete against the best from America, either here or there. Um, but one of the sticking points, and they got through all the rules and they were okay with all of the judging and things like that, things like, you know, should do- dogs drop the shot, which they do in England, but they weren't doing here and, and things like various little sort of nuances of how they were used there and not here. But what ended up sort of derailing the whole thing, it never, it never happened because the Americans insisted on retrieving. And not only did they insist on retrieving, they insisted that setters retrieve and not pointers. So here's just a little... Um, uh, here's from Forest and Stream in 1874. Um, here's the program of the Tennessee Sportsmen's Association, the, the people who eventually had the first trial at, at Memphis. Um, and it shed some light on, onto their thinking of the time. And so here, I'm going to quote it. It says, quote, We wrote to some 50 practical sportsmen occupying the best positions in several clubs in the U.S. as regarding the mode and style in which a setter, sorry, which a setter should be hunted and personally called on the most influential field sportsmen in New York and Brooklyn, requesting them to answer the following question. Is it necessary for setters to retrieve? The answer was, of course. We want a dog that will save us the trouble of picking up and walking long distances after our dead birds. Question, would you buy a setter that did not retrieve? Answer, no, unless it was a young dog that could be taught to fetch. Um, and so they went on and on and then they said, as to the pointer, a pointer should never be taught to retrieve. Pointers as a general rule are, are or ought to be used for open field shooting only as their delicate organization, thin skin, slight coat, and having no hair between their toes prevents them from retrieving from swamps. Hmm. So that was the thinking at the time. And, and it's really interesting. Eventually that went away. Eventually the retrieving requirement went away. Um, but at the beginning, Americans thought of setters as, as they quoted up here, they said, um, uh, a setter is, 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 is uh, why would you take that um, instinct out of the setter? They are, after all, spaniels. Um, and that's why they like to, that, that it says here, um, it is very likely to be found that the Grand Am, uh, no, 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 anyway, it, they, they thought them as, as sort of, as Labrec said, improved Spaniels. And huh. so, of course, Spaniels retrieved, so setters should. But that, again, eventually faded away. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, like, Another, often you hear guys talk about their setters don't, are not very good retrievers. So that's, okay, that's interesting. I'm sorry, Steve, but go ahead. Another early difference that was made in in the importation of of dogs uh was uh dogs that would honor her back mm-hmm. um it it was important when the english were running braces of dogs to have one honor the other um and that wasn't really an american style uh and you know quite often uh there was a lot of discussion on field trial judgments on whether they should require a dog to honor uh Another dog's point. Yeah, and that's actually a question I'll have for you, Steeple. You mentioned running in braces, and a lot of people don't know this, but brace stakes, like we call braces nowadays, is any any two dogs, and they're different dogs with two handlers, each with their own separate dogs. So it's two handlers, two dogs running in a brace. Um, but the actual, at the beginning, and even to this day, I believe rarely, but it still occurs occasionally, um, the original braces were not two handlers with 
one dog each. It was one handler with two dogs. And he ran his dogs at the same time in a brace. And he was judged. The handler and the dogs were judged. And then another brace from another handler would then run after that. So brace stakes originally were one handler with two of his dogs because that mm. represented a, a, a more typical way of, of how the English hunted. The English would oftentimes put two dogs on the ground at the same time. While well, that, the and so had there ever been brace stakes? Have there, that was typical, not just for braces, but for all the dogs in the states. Stakes. Uh, a lot of those earliest field trial stakes, the dogs were judged on a point system. Yes. And they would run one one single dog, and award him points for the different judging qualifications they asked for, um, and then they would run the next dog. Uh, the American. Well, but have there ever been brace stakes in America? Did the uh, Americans ever run like brace stakes like the English, whereby you had one handler with a brace of dogs running two dogs at the same time? Um, I'm sitting here looking to see the the early brace, earliest brace stakes, like uh, 1875 uh, at the Tennessee Sportsman Association. Um, the brace stakes were. Uh, Two handlers, four dogs down at, at the time. Yeah, that's cool. So that's a brace uh, of braces. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you yeah. Know, and, uh, you know, the, the winner would be, you know, not the best dog, but the best pair of dogs. The best pair. Yes, and, and how they were, you know, how they, they worked together, one quartering one way and the other quartering the other way and then passing in front. And, and Arkwright and, writes about it. He says that the, the epitome of style is to have a brace of pointers that are matched for speed and color and, you know, working the moors in front of you, that sort of a thing. Wow, um, okay. That That's probably on the cusp of... Uh, the Americans giving up that point system um, and just having a judge decide which dog he liked best. Exactly, yeah. Right. Um, you know, it, uh, I, you know it, it, it's hard to, to say which trial was the first to do so. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting, yeah. this, the, the old ways, like when you're thinking about it, like the, those rules, the English struggled for years. I mean, the English were, their trials ran, started running eight years before the Americans did. And, but even then, they were still struggling in terms of how do you judge these dogs? Do you judge them on the number of points, the style? Do you, do you have a, a, a list of scores? They had uh, positive points and negative points. In other words, if it busted, mm-hmm. it would lose points. But if it pointed well, it would gain points. So they really struggled with it for years. And one of the things I also came across was how did they name – why did they name them field trials at the beginning? Where did that come from? It was a new – it wasn't a new term, but it was the first time that they, they applied it to dogs. Um, so one of the things that I wrote was, you know, um, the, you know, after the first, well, before they had the first field trial, one of the decisions they had to, to, to make was what do they call them? Were they organizing a tournament? Some people said they should be called a tournament. Some said they should be a match or a contest. Mm-hmm. But in the end, they adopted a term that was already in use for guns 
as well as for mechanical um, harvesting machines and other things. They would try them in a field. And so field trials were actually being run, not run by dogs, but field trials were a thing around that time for two or more people with different designs of guns, Maybe especially if, for the military. They would, they would say, look, my gun's better than your gun, and they go, no, my, my gun's better than yours. And so they would have field trials. They were called field trials, and they would take them like artillery pieces and, and cannons, but also just you know small smoothbore guns and rifles. They would have field trials. So these sportsmen were, were you know, obviously familiar with them and some of them like Teasdale Buckle he um or Buckle Teasdale the trainer for Llewellyn he was actually a gun field trialer he actually participated in them and so when they got together that in that first you know field trial in 19 or 1865 in England that's the name they came across they said it's going to be a test it's going to be a competition which we're going to see which is the better one and so the best name for that is field trial well let me let me let me throw an let me throw an idea at you as far as coming at the name so, uh, you know, all of these dogs were owned by the earliest gun makers, you know, and so I th- yeah, for sure. So, if we're going well, off of they, that, I think oh. it makes sense to that they would call it a field trial because it's most relevant. And maybe did it have something to do with breeding? Well, again, field trials have been like the word. You, you, if you look before dog field trials were run, if you look like in the like I have access to all these old archives. If you use field trial in a search um, before 1865, you get you know articles on a field trial um, of two different locomotives. Mm-hmm. Um, so so and so built this locomotive, and this other guy's got a different design. So they're going to lay down two miles of track, two sets of tracks, and we're going to have a field trial. We're going to try them in the field. They will be you know sort of a trial by fire but a trial in the field. And so you've got those with guns, you've got them with cannons and artillery pieces for the military, for boats, for various different things. And so, again, th- these guys would have been reading those same newspapers because mm-hmm. those newspapers eventually added dogs. You know, they would add a new column, okay, right next to the poultry column and right next to the yachting and, and uh, you know, marathon running column. We're going to do one called the kennel, and it's going to talk about dogs. It was just sort of a new thing that was coming up for them. I'll say also there was some desire early on to separate the concept of a dog show and what became field trials. Some of the earliest dog shows for the pointing breed had as part of their standard that they would demonstrate their desire to point and they take a caged bird <laughs> and put it in front of the dog at the dog show to show that the dog had interest in pointing that bird in a cage. Mm. Um, and that and that was considered a very undesirable way of doing it. Uh, <laughs> I can only the, imagine. I can imagine, field, yeah. You know, by the, the people who, you know, were some of the early promoters of field trials um, and such. So, you know, there was it, it, some of it stemmed out of uh, a desire to have a better better demonstration of that pointing ability than what you would see at a dog show. At the same time, a lot of the earliest field trials, uh, and it carried on this tradition in, in Great Britain a lot longer than, than elsewhere, um, but the dogs would be scored on points the way they would be scored on points in a dog show, you know, with color and confirmation and, and things like that, um, you know, hips and shoulders and, and such, in addition to what they actually did in the field. 
Right. Um, you know, and it, and Americans rejected that, um, you know, dog show sort of qualities from the very first field trial. I mean, if you look at the very first field trial, they had dogs that were, you know, breeding, not given, um, you know, droppers and, and, and all sorts of, you know, it, it was, you know, performance, uh, based only. Um, but the English retained that desire to, to have confirmation, color and, and such as as an important part of their judging for for a long time. So, um, now, all right. So you and I'm, I'm going to go off on my little rabbit hole tangent again. So let's talk about droppers. You know, just let's let's get off. And I think it makes sense for the you know, if we're going to talk about pointer and setter history, was it always OK for droppers to be um you know, included in field trials, and it, and and why did why did the American field decide that it wasn't okay? Because there was actually a section for them, um, you know, and 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 so we go from this point in history where there's like you've got your setter only trials, and then you've got your pointer only trials, and they were never together and then we come forward to put them together and then we start breeding them together and then we go backward and say no it's not okay we don't want that well first first thing to consider in that is that no one ever was breeding multiple generations of droppers Mm -hmm. you know they might have had a dropper from their their kennel uh, or their home breeding or whatever, but nobody was continuing to breed droppers for, you know, five or six generations or anything as competitive dogs. Um, And the other thing I would say is that I'm not really sure that you would say that the American field made that decision. Um, The National American Kennel Club ran trials very early on and uh, they never allowed uh, any mixed breed dogs. Um, I'm sitting here trying to look at what their earliest trial was. Uh, Yeah, I'll just it looks like it looks like their first trial was 1879. So that would have been 11 years, um, you know, that they had made the decision that they weren't going to allow mixed breed dogs to run. Um, A lot of this is just also the pride of ownership of these expensive dogs. Right. The the people who had spent, you know, a thousand dollars or more in you know, eighteen seventy dollars uh, to import a dog from England, a purebred dog from England, had pretty great pride in their dogs and didn't want to breed their dogs to mix breeds. Okay. Um, you know, it was it was uh, a monetary issue too involved in there in that. Uh, yeah, and I should also mention that, 
you know, from a sociological point of view or from a sort of a marketing point of view, as I mentioned before, breeds are, are a new thing. In fact, back in the day when, 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 you know, pointers and setters were first starting to be bred by people, they would call a strain a breed. Um, they had other words where they would call them races or kinds or types or strains or lines or breeds. It all meant the same thing. It all just basically one guy's dogs, basically, you know, if one guy in one castle had his own breed and another guy had his own breed of pointers, they were all pointers and they were all related, but they called them breeds. But this idea of breeds came about in the Victorian era. And what you have to understand as well is during that era was a very transformational time of human history. The, the, the way I explain it to most people is this. Before that time, before the Industrial Revolution, which took up most of that uh, period of time, before the Industrial Revolution, everything you had in multiple copies was different. So you sit down at a table and there's four people and they're all eating off of plates. They all have forks and knives. But each one of those plates is different. Each one of those knives and forks are different. The chairs are sitting on are different because they were all made by hand. They were not made in multiple copies on an assembly line by machines. So every piece of clothing, everything you'd known in your entire life looked slightly different from everything else. There was no uniformity. Well, one of the greatest things of the Industrial Revolution was all of a sudden you can get things that look the same. Mm-hmm. Now to us, when we open up our, our you know, a, a drawer full of cutlery and every fork is identical, or when you've got three shirts, you buy them from a store and they all are the same, to us that's just ho-hum every day. Back in the day, it blew people's minds because they had never ever seen things that were identical. And to them, that, re- that represented the, the, the that represented the sort of the, the, the leading edge of technology. Oh my God, we can make multiple copies quickly and cheaply mm-hmm. of dishes and of, of all these household items. So I've always because- thought it was, I've always thought it was really curious that the word design mm. uh, coming out of the industrial revolution age meant to remove the signature from something. Yes. Because everything was individually made as a signature piece prior yeah. to the industrial process. Yeah, to design. So, so the, the concept of designing something was to remove that signature quality away from it, from the object. Yeah, um, and to make and, and, and to now to, our concept of design is to make thousands of things identically. Uh, yeah, and 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 that's the thing. And so for, so it was this revolution, and then all of a sudden, when they started applying it, like Bakewell, earlier than than some of the dogs that we're talking about, he started applying it to sheep and to cattle, doing selective breeding. And he was he was able then to to modify these breeds so that he could breed them for more meat or more wool, or and it was just sort of a concept that he applied. And then all of a sudden, things started to take on this uniformity. And then when they applied it to dogs, that blew people's mind. Up till then, you had litters of dogs where some came out long-haired, some were brown, some were black. You know, you didn't have this quote-unquote idea of purity. Now, purity was also around, especially in some of the noble houses and royalty. You married your cousin or your niece or your nephew. I mean, that was the whole thing about blue blood. You kept the blood within this very strict family. Now, we all know where it leads to royal families. They're all crazy. They're all mad as hatters, right? Right. Um, We know it's not good to have line breeding in in, in royal families and humans, just as we do that, you know, too close inbreeding in in dogs could cause a problem. But what it did at first was that it produced dogs that were predictable. And that is the one overall quality that pure breeding has over everything else, is that you can predict what your dogs are going to look like and you can predict what they're going to act like. So that predictability became 
That's why, as, as Steve was saying, that's why you're investing $1,000 in that puppy because you know what the parents look like and you have a pretty solid guarantee of what the, the, what the offspring are going to look like and act like. It's not a random thing anymore. So these random bred dogs were bred for, in the States for a long, long time. The, the Americans would breed any setter to any other setter and sometimes setters to pointers and pointers to setters. They didn't care as long as it produced game for them in that one generation. But what eventually became sort of prized and a real premium was to be able to predict what they were going to do and to ensure your your buyers and your purchases of these things that, yeah, all these dogs are going to be this or that color and all of them are going to do this or that or at least have the greatest odds of doing this or that. So in the early days, the Americans, and you can read this throughout Forest and Stream and other magazines, there was a real yearning for somebody to stamp some order on their system. There's one guy who said that they were badly in need of a system. They needed something to, to emulate the English. The English seemed to have their act together. They had books. They had records. All their dogs looked like they should look. They ran like they should run. And in America, we were kind of all over the map. They were all sort of being randomly bred. And so that was part of it. They, they said, okay, let's not, let's not allow these crossbred dogs anymore. Let's breed true. Let's breed pure. Let's, let's make these things predictable and understandable so that we know what we're dealing with and not just sort of random one-off breedings. And that, that was also some of the problems of the earliest American stud books, how we had such a fits and starts of, you know, the American Kennel Register and then the National Kennel Club and, you know, all the different registries they had before, uh, you know, things got more unified. Um, the original registries, like the American Kennel Register, everything was done on an affidavit basis. Yeah. Someone would produce the pedigree for their dog, you know, and swear on a, on a Bible that this is true. Uh, and, of course, there was a monetary invitation for a little bit of fitting there. Um, and and uh, Arnold Burgess, the guy who did that American Kennel Registry, uh, eventually closed it because he said too many people were were trying to were trying to fake their way into into the purebred dog world. Um, uh, you know, so it took Americans an extra generation or two to to really work that out. Um, and that's been sort of a plague of You know, to this day, there are dogs that don't have proper, aren't properly registered um, for other, a, a host of other various reasons. But, you know, back in the beginning, it, there was, you know, quite an interest for somebody to say, you know, my dog that's, you know, three quarters blood is actually full blood or, or something like that. Right. Right. And if and you read, if, if, if you read the right. earliest dog writers, they're all speculating on whether there was a foxhound cross or a greyhound cross or, you know, in any of the famous dogs of, of the day. Um, and, you know, that's been kind of true for any dog that's become a famous stud dog, you know, for someone to question its breeding. Um, 
I just, I, I look at that and, and, you know, try to judge, am I looking at a stud book of dogs that's 70% correct, 90% correct, you know, knowing that there are some, some faults in it. Okay. Well, there definitely is. A, when somebody, I remember having a discussion with somebody about how accurate pedigrees are, and and I said, well, they're they're a product of you know humans, of flawed humans. And uh, over years before we had computers, they were just handwritten documents that were copied. And so, at, at a bare minimum, there are transcribing errors. There are there are spelling errors. There are just mistakes made by human beings. You know, at the furthest end of that spectrum, there's you know complete fraud. I mean, you know, people just blatantly lied. I'm sure on on some occasions, the vast majority are probably relatively accurate, but none of them are are 100 accurate. And the example I use is that of the Hubble telescope. I don't know if you all remember this, but, you know, probably 20, 30 years ago when the Hubble telescope was first, um, you know, put into space, they'd spent years and billions of dollars making the Hubble telescope. These are like literal rocket scientists making the Hubble telescope. They launch it into space. And after about a week of it in space, they realized they made one simple calculating error on the curvature of the mirror. They made a mistake. Like somebody didn't carry the two over top of the decimal four or something. (laughs) And, you know, so so we're talking the world's best scientists, rocket scientists with NASA, you know, can screw up on a billion dollar thing. Well, do you think every single pedigree in history was correct because everybody was 100 percent accurate? It's impossible. So, yeah, there's been crossbreeding over the years. And, yeah, there has been even some has been, you know, not necessarily officially admitted to, but. Especially in Europe, you know, you get a couple of glasses of wine into some of them, and they'll show you the real pedigree of some of their dogs. And, <laughs> and, 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 you know, and it's, they're they're not as they're not as pure as the driven snow in a lot of ways. And so they put pointer into this, they put setter into that, and cross them two of them here and there. But I think again, of one of the real interesting stories in the history of all of that um, was for a long time the field dog stud book had just one guy as the registrar. His name was Ziegler, if I remember correctly. And he was very tough on anybody submitting uh, an affidavit type of pedigree um, or anybody who had had a history of misrepresenting the dog's greetings and stuff. He was considered a real tough guy on, on trying to keep all the registrations in line. And uh, one of the more famous dogs, in fact, the national champion dog, Mohawk 2, um, was never allowed to be registered in the field dog stud book until after he was dead. Really? <laughs> the, the Ziegler guy just went like, no, I'm not going to put it in the registrations. you know. And then once the dog actually died and had a number of offspring that were carrying the generations on and stuff. He said, like, okay, we'll start this with Mohawk 2, whatever he was, <laughs> you know, and, and move forward. Um, I think that's kind of what the Field Dog Stud book did with the DNA testing. They just said, you know, okay, we're going to DNA test, DNA sample, DNA test the every dog that's a champion or every dog that breeds more than five litters from now on and, and just move forward regardless of, you know, what was before it, you know, this is the date, you know, that from now on, we're going to try to make everything reliable on DNA testing and such. But, 
the the fact that Mohawk Two never got a registration in his lifetime was always I always thought that was a great story. Yeah. Daryl, I sent you something a little while ago, I believe, where we talked about it about a July hound or a, or a yep, um, July hound. Yep. Yeah. So, Stiefel, do you know anything about this, or what's your take on it? The rumor, I think it's mentioned also in in Harper's book. Um, and I've read it elsewhere that um, July Hound, which mm-hmm. is a hound, and Daryl, you might know the history of that particular dog. I think it was an imported hound that came in July. And, <laughs> yeah. named, and, and there's a statue or some sort of plaque uh, regarding that dog. It's the type of dog down, mm-hmm. down where you're at that they bred that into some pointer lines. So, it, and I'll give you some more context in addition, Steeple. Um, so, the gentleman that's that's really helped me out and really really kind of mentored me um, down here in Thomasville, um, Neil Carter. In one of my episodes, I was asking him about some pointer history. Um, as a whole lot of African Americans, we owned pointers back in the day, right? So, the, when I asked him, you know, about the nose and things like that, he was like, "Oh, well, they mixed July hounds into pointers," um, and that was something that's kind of it's, it's, it's kind of an unsaid thing, but kind of known down here in the South. So that's kind of where I got it from. And, I, and, and, and Craig and I were talking about it, and both of us have kind of looked for the dog. And the dog is actually a very, very, very white hound. Like a lot of hounds got a lot of ticking and stuff, but it's a very, very white hound. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yes. Yeah, and I found there's a plaque or something. Like that dog is like, it's a type of dog. Are there still July hounds around? Yeah, there's still a few here and there. Yeah. Um, you also hear a lot about the English with English foxhounds. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, at the time, and uh, one of the traits early on that they would say a dog had some hound in him was the fact that he would show tricolor. Uh, okay. Colors, um, because the English foxhounds were tricolored. So that wasn't a setter thing. That was actually a, a hound thing. Early on, now yeah, nowadays, yeah. It, nowadays it's it's you know more certainly a setter thing. Okay. Yeah, but in the uh, day, and it's well documented that it was a guy named Colonel Thornton that um, did the first. Well, he's reported to have done the first. It probably happened um, uh, prior to that and after him. But Thornton is the most famous of the ones that he bred. Um, they know the name of the dogs he bred. He bred a he bred a, a fox. A dog yeah, and he made a dog, and that was Dash, and he sold him for an incredible amount of money. And uh, Thornton is one of these characters. I love reading about these guys. You were you were talking earlier, Darrell, about you know personalities. Colonel Thornton was just a crazy man. He was like a womanizing gambler, drinker. There's this great painting of him with a twelve-barreled shotgun, the only <laughs> one ever made. And he, you know, he was a he 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 spent his entire fortune on dogs and horses and hunting and traveling, and then died broke um, in Paris, some sort of Paris brothel in his in his late age. But um, yeah, there's a great picture of him with a, a made by Manton, actually a twelve-barreled shotgun. Okay, I want to see that. <laughs> and he, yeah, well, yeah, just look it up. Just look it up. Just put the, the Colonel Thornton twelve barrel shotgun. There's a bunch of articles on it, but he, um, he was the guy that did the first uh, foxhound cross, and then it was subsequently repeated by others. Um, there's also been reports, and and mostly verified, of of uh, greyhounds being crossed into some lines uh, in England as well. Um, but the hound cross is well documented and known. And 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 what was the most revealing thing was the tail. Apparently, it brought the tail up and curved it almost like a sickle tail, and it made it hairy and 
more stubby. Apparently, uh, the English were very sort of keen on, on making sure their pointers had what they called a beasting tail. It just was a long, thin, and, and ended in a, in a very sharp point at the tail. And once they did the foxhound cross, I mean, among other things, it gave them more and, range and more endurance, but it also changed their tail, apparently. And, and one of the things that the earliest uh, pedigree breeders, you know, like say from... 1860 onwards would do would be um, what they call a mating test where uh, they take a stud dog's very first litter and breed that stud dog back to one of his daughters. Yeah. To see what's uh, in the woodshed. Just to prove, just so they'd have a, a batch of puppies there to prove that they didn't turn out to be shaggy or tricolored or, or any of those Oh, hold on, guys. Hold on, guys. Hold on, guys. I just, uh, I just disconnected. Hang on one second. Oops. Okay. Can y'all hear me? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Sorry. Yep. I, I just knocked my phone off my table. Say that one more time, Steeple. Um, one of the early, earliest things that the pedigree breeders would do from like 1860 onwards is in order to prove the purebred qualities of their stud dog, they breed that stud dog to one of his daughters from the very first litter. Uh, so they'd have puppies on hand to show that, you know, it doesn't throw back to any of the, you know, telltale traits of tricolor or shaggy hair or, you know, stumpy tails or those sort of things. They would, they, they would do what they called a breeder's test. Um, you know, to prove that. Hmm. And uh, and the Americans did that well into the perhaps 1920s, 1930s. Uh, Foster mentions doing that in his book, um, For Muscle Shoals Jake, and that's a dog of the 1930s. Hmm. Um, Okay. And such. Uh, So, you know, there there was uh, some of that um, going on to, you know, today we have DNA tests, but back then they would have a breeder's test, you know, to demonstrate their dog's qualities. Yeah. Now, uh, and I, I'm sorry, I took off on a rabbit hole. Had you had you heard about the July Hound thing in in any of those breedings or? Yeah, um, a real curious story about that that's often told is that. Um, uh, a dog rambling, a rambling rebel, mm-hmm. who was a very prominent stud dog, um, was a July Hound cross dog, and and that's the the rumor that you hear today. The original rumor actually wasn't that he was a hound dog cross; that he was the product of a dog named Hound's Cry, who was actually a registered pointer. Um, at the time. And, you know, so it was a misrepresented pedigree story that evolved into being a generic hound dog cross story um, and such. You know, like I said before, every famous stud dog has a story behind it yeah. uh, like that. And, you know, all of it is take it with a grain of salt. Right. Um and such, but uh, you know the the idea the idea 
of a hound dog cost is so persistent that that story about a rambling rebel has evolved into it being a hound dog cross rather than a registered dog named hounds cry. <laughs> wow. Okay. Okay. So, uh, but uh, yeah, there's, I mean, I've heard rumors about pointer breeders breeding to pit bulls, mm-hmm. you know, and things like that, you know, so, um, you know, those things go all over the place. Uh, there's generally um, dogs that are well known to be mis- misrepresented. Mm-hmm. You see the field trial breeders shun those dogs. I can think of a number of very famous dogs that never ever had any any progeny. They just nobody would breed to them because they knew that they that dog was misrepresented. What? Uh, mm-hmm. Give me give me one or two names. Um, example, Kansas wind. Okay. Was a, was a very prominent field trial winner. And I've yet to see any offspring of the Kansas wind, uh, registered in, in future field trial results or anything like that. I'm, I'm not, you know, it's quite possible that somebody bred to the Kansas wind, but, um, you, you certainly don't see them in the future field trial records. Gotcha. Uh, and that, um, and, you know, there's, there's a handful of others, you know, that um, uh, quite often you'll hear the story of, oh, well, that dog was sterile, you know, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and things like that. So now uh, let me let me swing into some observations or, or kind of a conversation that Craig and I had Um and you were kind of alluding to it, Craig, but you made a trip to Europe, how you know, and noticed. I can't remember if you had told me the club name, but you had said like you went and it was kind of an exclusive type thing, and you had noticed something about the way that they were conducting their trials that really, you know, struck a light bulb on for you. You remember that conversation? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there was a couple of things. So, you know, I've been traveling back and forth to Europe for, you know, 25 years now, uh, studying all sorts of dogs and whatnot. And uh, this is the first time that my wife and I actually got to England and northern England near the Scottish border to watch field trials. And um, so, of course, you know, I was blown away by the beauty of the whole place. And the dogs were good. The people were beautiful. And it was, it was just a great trip. But some of the things that really struck me was just how different it is and just how it's almost like this um the way i described it to one of them while i was there was it was almost like describing or or, or discovering a a a tribe in the amazon that hadn't had human contact in the last you know thousand years or had never contacted the outside world the pointer and setter world in england i'm talking in britain uh england scotland and wales um, is tiny, uh, and it is just a, a, a vestige, a very, very tiny thing that's left over from a hundred years ago. I mean, we have to realize that that it, we were just talking about all these field trials. The first field trial, 1865 in England, and then 1874 in the states. Even then, the setter and the pointer were actually in decline, um, and, and it, it, in England, um, and it increased um, by 1900. They were in trouble. 
um, they, they, they were in decline in terms of numbers and popularities because of driven shooting and because of changes in agriculture. All of a sudden, they were having these, these, these harvesting machines that would, that would you know, shave the stubble right down to about you know, an inch off the ground. There was no room or no place for the partridge to hide anymore. They were started you know, changing different ways of using different crops. So there was no, really, um, no game or, or, or situation that was good for pointers and setters to run, except maybe on the moors in the north on grouse. So, so pointers and setters really went into decline, sharp decline after 1900. Now, fast forward to 2000, 2020, the setter, the English setter, is on a list of endangered species or endangered breeds in England. What? Yeah, the English produce about 300 English setters per year, period, 300. In the States, we're talking, you know, several thousand. In Italy, they do up to fifteen to 20,000 setters per year. Whereas in England, there are very few setters, very few Gordons. Uh, Irish setters are, are still relatively popular in Ireland, but not in England. And pointers are slightly more. So pointers aren't in the same difficulty. But what that all means is that when you go to field trials out there, what you find is that the field trial people are super great, just like they are here too. I go to field trials in the States and you're never more welcome than at a field trial. I love them. I love all those people. I love the camaraderie. I think it's just a great thing to do. Right. And so everywhere I've attended field trials, I've really gotten along with the people and I've learned a lot from all of them. Well, in England, I, you get there and first of all, it's much smaller. I mean, we're talking at one of the really, really big trials. There might be 25 people, 30 people, 40 people would be a huge you know, turnout for them. Wow. And, they're all, and they're all the same people. They're basically, it's almost this little circuit. They follow from, you know, the south all the way to the north and then off into Scotland. And so day after day after day, it's more or less the same people. A few more come, a few leave, and different groups of people come and go. But so it's a very small group. They all know each other. They've known each other for years. Um, they have great respect for each other. The judges are great, and they are completely unknown to the rest of the world. We were in a pub in a fairly big town next to the little town where we were going to see the trial. And a young guy, he was a postal worker, he says to me, he goes, hey, you know, you're from Canada. I noticed the accent. Uh, what are you here for? I says, well, we're watching trials for pointers and setters. And he said, you're doing what now? I said, well, it's a field trial. It's a contest for dogs, pointers and setters. Well, what are those dogs? He didn't even know what pointers and setters were, huh. and he'd lived there his entire life. And so that's why I say that this, this group of pointer and setter enthusiasts who have decades and decades of, of, of experience, because the majority of them are 60-plus. There's a few younger ones, but they're quite, you know, there's a lot of gray hairs and bald heads in that group. And they're unknown to everybody else. They have their own little world that nobody else pays attention to, and they just do their own little thing. And then probably the most moving thing, and then sort of the most remarkable thing, was that at the beginning of each one of those trials, the judge would come out and say, okay, welcome, everybody. We're going to do this today, and here's, you know, you draw your numbers for the running order, and here's the rules, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to go up there, blah, blah, blah. Just goes over what's going to happen in the day, and he says, okay, now before we start, everybody, please, you know, let's have a minute of silence because so-and-so died last week. Or in the memory of, you know, so-and-so who was here for the last 50 years but isn't here now today with us. And every single trial we attended there, almost every single day, there was at least one. Little, you know, memorial service for one more person that has passed away. And looking around, there weren't a lot of 20-year-olds. There weren't a lot of 30-year-olds. You know, there was a two, three. So I, I really felt that we were witnessing an end of an era. We were witnessing the sort of the very last tail end, a little bit of, you know, fuel left in the tank. But that whole That whole scene which started and which flourished between – let's say 1750 and 1850. And then it's just been downhill ever since then. Whereas, you know, here in North America, we're fortunate in other parts of Europe, the field trial scene is still strong and healthy and, 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 you know, in some parts even growing. 
Okay. Okay. Sipa, what, what, what do you think about that, man? Like, is, have you noticed anything kind of similar here? Well, I would say it's a real, a different thing happening in America. In fact, that our field trial game has fractured into so many different groups. You know, we have, uh, field trials, you know, for all age and shooting dog. And then when, and then we've evolved to have walking dog trials. Um, and, and the walking dog trials are now evolving into several different flavors of walking dog trials. And we have NAVDA hunting dog tests and we have the shoot to retrieve game. And, you know, um, our, our group, you know, on a whole, if you counted every single field trial that was being held, there's more field trials being held today than there were 10 years ago or 50 years ago. It's been, you know, increasing in number. The participation in each segment is, you know, smaller by division. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's real hard to try to make any judgment on, you know, whether the the sport is is growing larger or smaller, um, one of the things I'm I'm often confronted with was uh, some old guy saying, "Remember when such and such trial had a hundred entries or something?" And then you go scratch your head. I don't recall that. And you go back and look in the the field trial uh, records of the old American field issues or something. And you find out that, you know, that trial had 100 entries one year, right. but on average, it only had like 40 or 50. Mm. Um, you know, real recently, uh, I think it was like 2005 or something, the Continental Field Trial had over 100 entries. That was the largest entry in the history of the Continental Trial. And, you know, that really wasn't that long ago uh, when you consider that the Continental Trial has been around for over 100 years. Right. Um, You know, their largest entry was just, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, It's it's hard to put a a finger on the pulse of 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 American field trials like that because because we have fractured the game into so many different segments. I was thinking of a conversation Craig and I had when he was talking about the difference of the dogs in American field trials. And I can't remember if it was Italian field trials that you were talking about or something, but you were saying the difference between um, American dogs being expected to run one hour or three hours where the European trials were a very short period of time. Do you want to pick up that story, Craig? Yeah, basically, you know, when I went to England, what I realized was that um, English, and one of the parallels I make in my book is that think of English, we'll talk about pointers or English setters. Let's talk about English setters. It's like the English language. They, They start in England, and then it, you know, sort of went outside of England, and so now... 
you've got populations of English speakers in the States and you've got populations of English speakers in Australia. And it would take you about two seconds to differentiate between the two. An Australian, an American, and an Englishman walk into a bar and the bartender knows all three of them ain't from around there. Mm -hmm. They all have different accents. They're all speaking the exact same language, but they have different accents. And linguists could tell you that, you know, the Americans have, you know, we, we pronounce the R to an extreme, whereas the English don't. And the Australians might pronounce a different letter to an extreme as we don't. Um, it's the same with dogs. So the English setter came out of England. It, it ended up in America and it ended up in the, and the big sort of center of English setter breeding in, in Europe is, is Italy and France and Spain. And um, the group of people breeding them in the States have bred them to one extreme and that extreme is endurance. And that extreme is, you know, what we would consider style and class in terms of the high tail and the lofty head and those sorts of things. So the extreme that we took was bottom, heart, lungs, just endurance and range. The the Italians and the French and the Spanish, on the other hand, um, they took the extreme portion of their athleticism to speed um, and style in what they call style, in, in what they see as style, like a really exaggerated panther stalking its prey type of point in that dog. Whereas on the American one, you'll see a, you'll see a setter blazing across the field and slam on point, and the head is high and the tail is straight up, and wow. Uh, in an Italian field trial, you'll see that dog running even faster, because they run like at top gear the whole time, not for as long, obviously, but when it goes on point, it'll look like, yeah, it looked like a tiger in the jungle kind of thing. Yeah. So both of them have bred to an extreme. Both of them have selected different things. And the Americans, it's endurance, it's range, it's um, uh, bird sense, what we call. In Europe, it is sheer all out, your ass is on fire running as fast as you possibly can. And the best way I describe it to Americans is imagine watching your pointer or setter running at it's, you know, fast and your dog is fast and they are American dogs are very fast and you know how fast that dog is running. And then imagine a rabbit pops up in front of that dog. Well, that dog, you know, he's got another gear. You know that that dog could pick it up one more notch and go after that rabbit. That is the speed that the European dogs are expected to run for the entire trial. Oh wow! And that's why their and that's why their trials are or their their stakes when they run are anywhere from ten to twenty minutes. But it's ten to twenty minutes of absolute top fuel dragster speed. They they look like greyhounds running. Whereas in the states they're running fast, but my God, your jaw drops after realizing that the thing's been doing it for three hours. <laughs> So I would yeah. say that they both represent extreme ends of an athletic spectrum. It's just that they've chosen different parts of that spectrum to exaggerate. So let me let me and, and let's let's carry that a little bit further. In that, that's one of the difficulties that we've always had importing new blood into our bloodlines. Yep. Um, the European dogs don't breed that high head, high tail style that the Americans desire. And the American dogs don't breed that lightning quick speed or that uh, lower tail type of style that the Europeans desire. And so we've gotten to this point where um, we can't really cross those dogs, even though they are the same breed, same registration uh, system, you know, same genealogy, uh, but they're no longer interchangeable uh, parts of a machine. 
Right. Yes. Yeah. No, you're right. And and yeah, especially for you know field trial competition and things like that, for sure. Um, I've had I've had the the you know I've hunted over European bred setters and pointers here in North America, and I've seen them actually run together with um with North American bred pointers and setters. And you're right. I mean, you know, as a, if I were a field trial judge or a field trial participant, yeah, I would. Those differences would would make all the difference in the world. But hunting over them, they're all damn fine hunting dogs. <laughs> like. They'll all put a smile on your face as as, as hunting dogs, and and you know it, it, it's thanks to the field trialers, it's thanks to those people who are pushing the envelope that we have the dogs that we have you know go hunting with. Um, it's just like I say, they've just chosen different parts of the envelope to push. That's all. Right. So now, Craig, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote you for a second. I was reading um, your article here and there. It's a four part series, right? And Mm -hmm. you said that, you know, you believe that North American field trials are one of the most effective systems ever devised of selecting top notch hunting dogs. You know, I want to dig into that. And and Steeple, you know, what do you think about that? Craig, what, what tell me about that for a second? Well, first of all, you have to understand that, you know, pointing dogs, using a pointing dog to put meat on the table is probably the least efficient calorie in, calorie out enterprise man has ever undertaken. You would, you know, you, right. you have to rely just on a pointing dog to, to put meat on your table. That's like relying on a fly fishing rod to, you know, to feed your kids. It'd be easier using a net and it'd be easier to, you know, raise cattle. So really what we're talking about when we're using a pointing dog is the aesthetic qualities, is the artistic qualities, is the qualities that we, we run these dogs for um, to, to, to run fast and, and, and nail these points and fine game and have fine noses and stuff like that. So you've got to realize that all of the traits that we have in our pointing dogs come from canines. Wolves can run. Wolves can gallop. Wolves point. So do foxes. So do many animals. They point. It's just that we've taken dogs and, and we've, we've put them to the, to, to the point of an obsessive, compulsive uh, nature of the dogs. We've really bred sort of freaks of nature so that, so that where a fox might point for half a second before it jumps on a mouse, we got a dog that'll point where you have your supper. You know, you could, like, they'll point for hours. We have, you know, a wolf will run or gallop only when it needs to. We've got, you know, you, get a, you can get a... a 12-week-old setter puppy, put it down, the thing just starts running. It has no idea why, but it'll run until it's exhausted, practically. So, nature does not want our dogs to be the way we want them to. If we left them alone, you took every pointer and setter in somebody's kennel, you put them on an island, you come back 100 years later, you'd have coyotes, okay? They would all go back to to the original sort of canine ancestor, and it doesn't point and run like we want it to. So how do you keep it then? How do you keep it in these dogs? How do you make sure that it's there? You At the one end, you need extreme dogs. You need dogs that have an abundance, almost a an overabundance of those qualities. You need them to be just almost too much dog. And, and, and that's the main, you know, knock on a lot of field trial dogs is that for the average dude that goes out and hunts a few quail once a year, that's too much dog. Well, dang right. It's too much dog and it should be too much dog for them. Just like a racing car that's testing a brand new fuel injection system or a racing car that's got this, that, or other system in it is testing that system, which eventually finds it, you know, finds its way into your Ford 150 or your Dodge pickup. It's the same with field trial dogs. We need those dogs. We need those breeders. We need those handlers to make sure that we're always pushing that envelope to the far end of that 
envelope because mother nature is pulling it in the opposite direction. Mother nature doesn't want our dogs to point for an hour. It doesn't want our dogs to run full out for three hours. It doesn't want our dogs to do what our dogs do. So we better make sure that we got at least, you know, a good sizable population of dogs that have a, a ton of what we want so that when we breed it into all the other dogs that we have for hunting, that it's still there and it's not gone away. Right. But let, let's put a couple of, of names on those traits. Uh, let's start with that uh, innate ability to point. Mm-hmm. And and let's call that catalepsy. Yes, it is. It is. Um, yeah, you're right. You're exactly right. And, yeah. and, you know, if for somebody who's not in the world of Latin scientific terms and such, you know, think about the term catatonic, meaning you're frozen and unable to speak. Um, hmm. From cata being frozen and tonic speaking. And then think of epilepsy as having a seizure. The lepsy part of that word meaning having a seizure. So catalepsy means that you're frozen in a seizure. In humans, that's considered a trait of schizophrenia. Um, One of the measures of a true cataleptic dog would be your ability to come up to that dog while it's pointing and rearrange its, its limbs or its tail. So you'd be able to walk up to that dog and push its tail upwards or downwards. Um, in its pointing position and have it remain frozen like that. Um, And then uh, let's put a term on that uh, Mother Nature pulling everything in the opposite direction would be what they call drag of the race. Yes. Um, Was a a very common term of of the old-time writers uh, talking about the drag of the race. And how when you most breedings breed toward mediocrity, that it takes exceptional individuals to actually improve a breed uh, in that respect. Hmm. Yeah, it's like I always say, it's like paddling a canoe against the current. If you stop paddling, you don't stand still. You go backwards. Right. Right. Um, And uh, we've had any number of different measures through the years of what we call prepotency, that ability for a dog to rise above mediocrity in, in his offspring um, and such. And uh, the really prepotent dogs, you know, there's just one or two in in each of the generations of the mm-hmm. you know of the of the you look at a a chain of the dogs from uh muscle shoals or john proctor to paris jake muscle shoals jake the air pilot to uh the seven more generations that were all hall of fame dogs um and that's just picking one individual dog out of each generation, you know, where a dog like Air Pilot or or Muscle Shoals Jake might have had 
500 or more offspring. Um, and we're picking one out of that 500 as being that prepotent dog that's carried the family tree forward to the generations that we have. There's a lot of branches in the family tree. Um, the Jingo uh, branch of, of dogs is a good example that bred for many, many generations and finally fell out of favor and um, are basically extinct now because a different chain of dogs was what ended up being desired. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Um, Y'all just hit me with a a new (laughs) Latin term. I like that catalepsy. Um, Wow. I'm on, I'm on save that, but I just think that, um, you know, what we got going on here is, is a very good thing. Um, and I, I wanted to, you know, end on that note. I mean, I think that's a, a very, very, very good place to kind of stop. Um, so before we kind of wrap up, you know, uh, Steeple and, and Craig, give me one thing, I guess, one thing that we should all know from this conversation like if if there was a like an overarching theme you know from the history of pointers and setters you know give me give me one kind of final thought um well i'll go first my one final thought is that the world is much bigger than we think it is the world of field trials the world of pointers and setters it's much bigger than we think it is i i I talk with breeders and and trainers and trialers all the time and thank goodness they have a laser-like focus on what they're doing um because we benefit from it as hunters and as people who like these dogs you know you 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 some of these guys are are so focused and, and 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 you know just sort of concentrated on what they're doing um that the results speak for themselves they do great work um, but I think that as um, just as um, you know, uh, enthusiasts and fans of the whole of the whole pointer and setter situation and field trials, what we need to understand is that the broader picture is so much more fascinating that you even that that you even thought about it. And 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 the resources are there nowadays in the internet age when we can go online and take a look at some of these old archives. It's unbelievable the stuff that you can get into. I mean, I, I spend hours and hours and hours just poring over some of the old literature and and history books as well as the modern stuff. And I follow them on the YouTubes and I follow them all over the internet. But that's my final thought: is that every so often you need to kind of step back a little bit and uh stop hey like like steeple stop counting the leaves on every tree (laughs) (laughs) and get up in a balloon and take a look at the overall picture it is so much vaster and more interesting than you'll ever know okay i'm constant i'm constantly approached by people in south africa or Mm. um australia uh, some in Europe and such that want to know uh, the lineage of a certain American dog uh, because that dog has wound its way into uh, their pedigrees and such. Um, so even even the the leaves that are numbered make their way into the international discourse. Okay. Um, if I was to come away with one aphorism is that the cream always rises to the top. Okay. Um, the famous dogs 
of history are famous for a reason. Um, you know, the, the, the reason that we remember the name of Lang's Flint or Price's Bang or White House's Hamlet or John Proctor or Muscle Soul Strait um, was for what they did for our breeds. Um, you know, the, the same is true with, with the different important dogs of setters or, or any breed. Um, the, the reason that we remember those names are, are linked to history was because they, they made an important change, not necessarily a change, but they were an important link in that chain of dogs from past to present. Right. Um, okay. Okay. Well, you know, I, I think both of you guys have done a, a number of wonderful things on here. So I can't thank y'all enough. And of course I'm, I'm still, like I said, I'm, I'm learning a lot from you guys and uh, you know, I would, you know, I, I really want to see if we can follow up and do a part two on this. If, if that's all right with you guys, um, you know, we just it, the surface of the surface. <laughs> I think so. Um, man, I, I hope I can take the reins from, from y'all, you know, where, where and, and to me, it's kind of like a master class, you know, you, you, you kind of get into your thesis project and things like that. Um, that's just kind of the way I see it. And that's, that's, that's just where I see, you know, me learning dog history. And I think all of the points that you guys have are great, but anyway, I'll be long winded and I'll keep talking about it. But, um, thank y'all <laughs> to say the least. Well, thank thank you, y'all. You're welcome. You're certainly welcome. Yes, sir. So let's coordinate some time and, and, and maybe we can get a part two in, you know, in the, in the very, very, very near future. Anytime. All right, Hope guys. All right, guys. Thank y'all so much. And I will, I will give you guys both a buzz, you know, after a little while, pretty soon. All right. Thank you very much. Bye-bye now. All right. All right. Bye. Goodbye. All right, guys. That's another episode of the Gundog Notebook Podcast, episode 99, Drag of the Race. But I just want to conclude by saying thank you, number one, to my listeners, um, you know, social media subscribers, um, podcast subscribers, you know, all the emails, if I been kind of slow to respond and all of that stuff over these few years with, you know, the development of the podcast, I, I, I do want to say, I just thank you for, for listening and being patient and all of that stuff. Um, but also I want to thank, of course, my sponsors, um, Onyx Hunt, my title sponsor, you know, I, I, I enjoy, the technology that has been so beneficial to me in the field and, and so many others. Um, you can do the sporting dog for, you know, so many get number one, keeping my dogs fed, but number two, you know, in light of the derby season, you know, giving me a, a once in, you know, a, not once in a lifetime opportunity, but an opportunity that I had been waiting on for the duration of my lifetime. Honestly, something my, my, my grandfather and I um, had always wanted to go see. You know, and, and being at the Oaks last year was a, a, a really, really cool thing. Um, and, and just keeping my dogs fed, keeping them strong in the field. So thank you. You can have a sporting dog. Uh, my affiliates, Garmin, uh, Fish and Hunt, and, and, and Lion Country Supply, the guys there. Um, you know, Eric, Steve, uh, you know, everybody that has just really been helpful um, 
throughout the duration and development of this podcast and, and, and keeping me in the field and, and, and geared up in the right way. So anyway, guys, um, that is the end of the episode. And I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do for episode 100. I'm going to obviously, you know, think about it some more. But, you know, I knew this one, this one took a second to kind of produce. And that was just for the research and the history. Um, I really want to give you guys something that you can really chew on and digest um, every episode. And I feel like it's been getting better and better um, every time I put one out. So with that being said, again, thank you all for y'all's support. Thank you for your patience. And, and you know, keep listening, man. Keep reaching out. I'm looking forward to hearing from you guys. Um, don't forget about the listener mail. Um, if you want to send something, man, we'd love to get you, you know, get a little snippet of your voice on, whether it be support or some thoughts or anything, guys. Um, send that little uh, voice memo or audio clip to um, thegundognotebook at gmail.com. All right, guys, stay tuned next week. I'm looking forward to it.